You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Hello, church. Good to see you all. My name's Simon. If you don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you are visiting and you're a guest, come shake my hand. I'd love to say hi, meet you, and put a face with names that we kind of talk about all the time. So we're uh, glad that you're here. As I've been preparing for this sermon, uh, we've been working through the book of Acts. Acts is just a book that took place uh, when the early church started and what the church looked like as soon as Jesus ascended to heaven and as people started being about the work of ministry. But it made me think of something. It made me think of my Saturday mornings as a child watching Looney Tunes. Anyone watch Looney Tunes? Uh, what a horribly violent cartoon. You don't realize how violent that cartoon is. You're like, as an adult, you're like, that's really, really violent. But it was always this thing, as I'd watch this show, uh, there'd always be a, a point at some one of the different scenes or characters, they'd have to make a decision. And one, something would always seem to happen when they had to make a decision. Remember what it was? A little red guy with a pitchfork and horns. He could be on one shoulder. And he's like, do the bad thing. And then immediately uh, a, a guy in a white robe with a halo and a harp would say, no, do the good thing. And they would have to make this decision at some point. And we started to see and we started to understand as children, there's this internal struggle about making good choices and bad choices as individuals. And what we would see is, if you make good choices, there'll be good things that happen. And if you make bad choices, bad things will happen. And this idea starts to get even more solidified in our minds, which is, if you do good, you go to heaven. If you do bad, you go to hell. That's kind of what starts getting played out all the time. Well, the funny thing is, according to the Bible, that's the farthest thing from the truth when it comes to what the gospel looks like and what happens with eternity in heaven and hell. And so what I want to do is I want to talk a little about the idea of good works and, and what that looks like. How do we know we are good? How do we know that we are bad? And, and what does that look like? Because if you start asking the question, if I do good things, I go to heaven, well, what's good enough? H how much good do I have to do for that to work? Or we start to ask the question, like, because I don't know if I'm good enough, can I really know if I'm ever truly saved at all? And so I've heard people say over the years, based on those ideas, based on those thoughts, and they go, well, I don't, I'm not good enough for God's love. I'm not good enough for God's grace. I'm not good enough for God's mercy. I've done some bad things, Simon. I've had some bad things happen to me, and we carry this shame and this guilt around in our lives. Anyone besides me lay awake at night wishing they wouldn't have done something? Just me. Great. We all have those moments, right? Those moments of regret. Those moments of like, I should have done this. If only I could have done that. And we feel the weight and the pain of those decisions in life. And so we start to do something. We say, well, I can't, God would never love me that way. A God would never care for me because I'm broken. I, I'm damaged goods. I've heard that saying before from people. And so what do we do? What we start to do is we start to go, well, sure, God's grace sounds great. Sure, God's grace sounds free. But let me add to it. Let me do a bunch of good things, and then that way God will accept me. He'll be happy with me. And we start to play this penance game, don't we? Like, well, I'm not good enough, but if I do this, it makes me feel better about receiving that. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? Let me paint another story, 
There's another story that might make sense of why that's so strange. Let's say this Christmas, and I'm kind of hinting and hoping, that my family decides to buy me something that I've always wanted. And we're talking, it's, it's so expensive, there's no way that I could afford it, there's no way that I could ever save up enough money. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they all pull together, and they bring this gift to me on Christmas. And I'm like, what? This is great. Take notes. And so, <laughs> and so I get this gift, it would be so strange if I reached in my pocket and I pulled out a crumpled $5 bill and I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Let me pay you for that. Wouldn't that be strange? Because it's not, A, it's not even close to the value of the thing that I've been given. And so it's almost, it, it's, it's an insult, isn't it? It's so insulting that you would try to pay for it. And then you know what it doesn't make it? A gift. It doesn't make it a gift anymore. But this is exactly what we do all the time when it comes to God by doing good things and believing that that is earning or keeping our salvation. And so what we do is we do Jesus plus. Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus prayer, Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus, we add all these things. And if you do those, then we're in the circle, we're in the sphere. Well, this is the issue that we're dealing with this morning in this passage in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are the characters that we've been studying the last few weeks, and they have gone out on a missions trip. They spent the last year proclaiming the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, that it is a free gift from God, that you cannot earn it, you do not deserve it, you cannot work to get it, but it's solely by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that he offers this gift. And anyone... Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will have their sins forgiven, be saved, and be with him for eternity. So they come back from this trip, and they're pumped, and they're excited, and they saw um, men and women come to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There's a lot of Jewish men and women. That's primarily who they were talking to at first, but it started to spread out to non-Jewish men and women. And all these non-Jewish men and women really responded to the gospel like, wait, you're telling me? That this God who created everything loves me, cares for me, has invited me into his kingdom? And they're like, yeah. But then a problem occurs. The problem was this. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to Acts chapter 15. We're a Bible-preaching, Bible-believing church here. We go through verses of the Bible, books of the Bible, chapters of the Bible, because we believe that it's the Bible that changes lives. It's the Word of God. It's His truth. And so if you're new, uh, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. It's a, it's a study. It's like ESV Bible. If you don't have one, take it. Keep it. It's yours. It's a free gift. We want you to have God's Word. All right, so let's see what happens with this situation. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believed who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So I'm going to pray, 
And then we're going to jump into this section of scripture. And by the end, we'll finish chapter 15. Jesus, thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the free gift of grace that you offer us. We thank you that you love us so much that you would shower us with undeserved and unearned love, that you have sent your son to die in our place as a substitution, to give us eternal life, to give us hope, to give us a future and a purpose. Lord, I ask that we communicate this morning that you would continue to change lives and reach in the lives of men and women. Maybe they're here for the first time hearing the truth about the gospel and that it would penetrate their heart and that they would come to a place where they would accept you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Lord, for those that need to take a look at their life, I ask that you would convict where you need to convict. And I ask that your name would be lifted high as we sit underneath your word. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the first thing we have is the issue. The issue is really basic. It's really simple. And the question, kind of, it's a kind of a question, which is the issue. Do you have to follow the law of Moses to be saved? Do you have to follow the law for salvation? Is that how it works? So these Jewish believers were trying to make these non-Jewish believers basically become Jews. And they were going to put this burden on them to live out the law of Moses um, in every situation of their life to achieve salvation. That's really what the problem is as we look at it. It's almost like there was this bait and switch with the Gentiles. They're like, hey, it's by grace alone, through faith alone. And then these people are like, no, it's not. And they're like, wait, what? And they have to have a discussion. Like, what does it really mean to have God's grace in our life? And so they use this term. My, my son's laughing at me. He said, you're going to preach out of this section. I'm going to be talking about circumcision. I said, I know. What are you going to do? It's where we land. It's where we are. But they use the word circumcision. And then the idea of circumcision was it was the covenant between the people of Israel and God that they are his people, that they are part of his family, that they belong to him. It was a physical expression of that. But really more so, it embodied all of the rituals and the rites and the laws that revolved around being Jewish. All the festivals, all the things they would do, the way that they would give, the way that they would live, what they would abstain for, how they would become uh, ritually clean, all of that's embodied in that statement of being circumcised, that you would be Jewish. That's really the idea of what that looks like. And so these Pharisees, these men were asking the question, how could God love you if you're not Jewish? Because we're the chosen people. We're God's special people. How in the world could you be a part of this kingdom, of this family, when you're not one of us? And they might be thinking, okay, well, well, maybe you are loved by God, which is crazy for a Jewish person to even think that a Gentile would be a part of God's family. But he, they're probably thinking, well, that just means you got to go through all the stuff and be like us anyway, and then you'll be a part of the family. That's the only way you can be saved, clearly. Well, see, the law of Moses was about a bunch of rules what to do, what not to do, what to avoid, what to be a part of, who to keep at arm's distance. And if you did them, you're like, oh, great, God's happy with me and I can be in relationship with him. But if you didn't, it's like, oh, well, I'm out then. I got to be away from community. I'm not a part of his kingdom. And there was this tension that exists in it. Now, I would say this. This is what most people think about when they think about religion, right? They say, oh, you join. So what can you eat? What can you not eat? Uh, how often do you have to go to church? How often do you have to pray? Can you do this? Can you not do that? Oh, you have to give this up? Oh, God seems like a buzzkill. Like there's all these things around being religious and it always seems to revolve around rules. What you can and what you can't do. And so 
The thing is, God's law was never actually meant to save us. It was just meant to show us that we needed to be saved. I've used the analogy a million times. I'll probably use it a million more because I think it works. The law, God's word, his truth, what he's called us to is just like a giant MRI machine. It scans our body and lets us know that there's something foreign in our body that's not right, that's going to kill us. Now, you can be like, well, I don't like the Bible. I don't like God's law, and I'm just going to ignore it. It would be like going and getting an MRI, realizing you have a massive tumor in your stomach, and say, well, I don't like what I heard. I'm just going to ignore it. We know how that's going to work out. And the reality with God's law is he's saying, there will come a point where you will have to stand before me and give an account and give judgment. There'll be judgment cast on you about how you lived your life. You can do that one of two times. You can do that, A, now, by placing your life in the life of Jesus and having your sins paid for and the wrath of God absorbed through Jesus on the cross. Or you can do it when you die and you stand before God and he says, give an account of your life and how you lived. That's how that works. And so the problem then comes to this. What's the standard? Like, what's the standard if I stand before God? Well, the standard is perfection. Because God is holy, he is perfect, and so there is no lesser standard that he would accept. He actually has to judge and deal with sin. And so what we see is because of this question, because of this issue, because of there being this um, people trying to make it so you can't understand the gospel, Paul and Barnabas go on a 15-day walk 300 miles to Jerusalem. You seem like, couldn't they just send a letter? <laughs> Seems easier, right? Well, here's the thing. It was so important that Paul said, I will drop everything and we will walk half a month to go 300 miles because the foundation of the gospel is what we believe. Everything revolves around the gospel. It determines what we preach. It determines what we, what we teach. It shows us how we should live. It gives us the ability to know that we have assurance of salvation so we're not constantly questioning, am I saved, am I not saved? Did I do, did I do enough? Did I not do enough? It takes all that so we can understand it. And if we get that wrong, if we get the gospel wrong, we get everything wrong. And we miss the whole point. And I believe, honestly, that today we still have this issue that we're dealing with today, that people don't understand the gospel and what free grace truly looks like, that it is a gift from God given to undeserving people because he, he is good and he is loving and he cares for us and he cares for you. So my second point is grace over works. So they basically they get to this meeting in Jerusalem, and everyone gets together, all the key players, and they have this, we'll call it a talk. <laughs> it was a debate. It was a massive debate that they were going through, and everyone that had a, a beef came in, and they started talking about it. And we have all these key people in the church in Jerusalem going through this, and they're in Jerusalem, so primarily those believers were what? Jewish. <laughs> so you've got a lot of that going on. You've got Paul and Barnabas right fresh off the heels of this amazing missions trip where they say all these non-Jewish people saved. And so what ends up happening is we don't know all the discussion in that meeting. But what the writer Luke has done in the book of Acts is given us three things that were said by three key figures so we can understand where they landed and the consensus of where they were. 
The first person that's going to speak is going to be Peter. You may know Peter. He's the guy who walked on water. He was the fisherman. He's the dude that denied Jesus three times. He's the guy that tradition says was hung upside down on a cross who ended up dying for uh, Jesus later. So that's who we're talking about, Peter, okay, the rock. And it says this in verses 7 through 10. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter's got basically five points that he's dealing with here. And they're, they're pretty straightforward. They're not really complicated, which is good for us because complicated makes it hard. He says this, God called me to share with them. The idea is like, well, God told me so. That's really what he's saying there, that God called me to it. And he was recounting in that moment, um, you may remember the story of Peter and Cornelius. He goes to this Gentile house. He has this vision about food and don't call unclean what I've made clean. And he starts talking about how that works and how Gentiles can now be a part of the kingdom. He preaches the gospel because they say, hey, tell us about how to be saved. He preaches, the whole house believes in God and all the servants, they get baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit. And at that point, we see the door open for the Gentiles to have the gospel. That's how that took place. So that's his first point. God told me, and this is what happened. And then he starts to dive into the facts of what took place. He says, God gave them the Holy Spirit. Why is that significant? Well, the Holy Spirit is the, the, the evidence of a salvation of a Christian. We can't have the Holy Spirit until we confess Jesus as our Lord. Then we are filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who lives within us, who lets us understand the Bible, what to pray, to convict us of sins, to, to call us to repentance. All those things come from the Holy Spirit. God indwelling us. Well, if you're not saved, you can't have the Holy Spirit. He's saying these individuals had the Holy Spirit. God approved of them. He didn't disapprove of them being a part of the family. And then he says that he cleansed them by faith. What's that all about? So if you understand a lot of the Jewish tradition and how they could become clean, there was things that they could touch, they couldn't touch, things they could do, they couldn't do, and those things would make you unclean, biblically. And so there was all these things you had to do to make yourself clean. They usually evolved around a sacrifice and lots of blood. You put blood here, you put blood there, you put blood on this thing. And that blood is saying that there is a sacrifice made for those sins, which has washed you clean. And they would go through this all the time. Well, he's, what Peter is saying is they've been made clean, but not by these other sacrifices. What's made them clean is the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And his blood is what washes us and makes us clean. Maybe you've heard that term like, you need the blood of Jesus to wash you. And you're like, you're a part of a cult. Like that just sounds weird. 
Well, that's the reference and that's what's being said is that the blood of Jesus is what cleanses us. And he says, they didn't have to go through this system of sacrifice. What they, they were cleaned by having faith in Jesus Christ that he did what was needed to be done to make us clean. And then I love where Peter goes. He says, we can't even keep the law. Why in the world would you paint these guys in a corner? Our forefathers couldn't keep the law. We can't keep the law. So why in the world would we have them do it? How disheartening would that be? Like if that's where salvation comes from and we can't reach it, all you're doing is putting doubt in their minds and making them question the very thing that Jesus has given them. That's what he's saying. Like this idea of the law is like, if we are to be in relationship with God, we would have to keep the law perfectly in every single way. We know we haven't done that. The law continually reminds us that we can't, that we don't have the ability to. And what it points to is that we need someone that can live that law out perfectly for us because we don't have the ability. When Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He understood what he was doing. He was meeting the requirements for us to have access and to be in the presence of God through what he's done in the law. So when someone says, oh, it doesn't matter if Jesus was perfect or not. Yeah, it does. It absolutely is imperative to us. If he didn't fulfill the law, then we're hosed. If our life is hidden with him, then we don't have that righteousness. We don't have that access then. And then he says this at the end. And you gotta remember, the Jews and the Gentiles didn't like each other. More so the Jews didn't like the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, when they'd pray, they'd say, Lord, thank you for not making, and this is so bad. Lord, thank you for not making me a woman or a Gentile. It's like, that's not right. That's not cool. Don't do that. But that's how they looked at Gentiles. They were, they were dirty. They were unclean. They were ceremonially unclean because everything that they ate and they touched, God said wasn't good and would make you unclean. So they saw them as just these walking shrines of uncleanliness and righteousness. That's how they viewed them. And so for Peter then to say, there is no distinction between us, we are equal, was huge. For a Jew to say, we are equal on a level playing field, and as Jesus has saved us, Jesus has saved them, there is no more distinction. We are equal. We are all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That was ground-shaking for someone like that to say that. And then he finishes, and then Paul and Barnabas come up. Paul and Barnabas, we don't have the actual speech that we said, but we actually have all the writings of what took place. So we kind of know what they said. And in verse 12, it says this, and all the assembly fell silent because, you know, Peter just dropped the mic on him. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related to what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So here's what they do. I think Paul understood what was happening. Peter just comes up, lays out the foundation of the gospel and what it looks like and what took place. He's like, all I'm gonna do is keep stacking facts and information on it. And all he does is give examples. Yeah, what Peter said. Yeah, what Peter said. And what Peter said happened here. And what Peter said happened here. And what Peter said happened here. And they just walked through it. And they prayed. And they were baptized. And they received the Holy Spirit. And they went to another city. And they prayed. And they were baptized. And they received it. And he just kind of kept, all he's doing is recounting all that he did. It's probably actually a long speech because they went through every single city giving heaps of evidence on the grace of God and they're saying, and they were saved too. 
And then James comes up. You might know James is the brother of Jesus, which I always go, man, for Jesus to say, I'm the son of God and I lived a perfect life. If there's one person who would know that wasn't perfect would be your brother. If you've got siblings, you know they're not perfect. Though they may put that out there, you know they're not. And so for James to then be the guy who's like, yeah, I worship my brother as Lord and Savior who is perfect is kind of crazy. That's who speaks next. He was uh, really one of the main leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And so this is what he says in verses 13 through 19. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is it's just a Simon, which is Peter, that's all he's talking about, related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Okay. So, I love what James does. James does what I think we could all learn from all the time. Where does he go? Scripture. He goes to God's word. He's like, okay, when we don't understand something, where should we go? Google. No, scripture. You want to go to scripture. That's where you want to go. What does God's word say about any given subject? Like, what does he want to communicate to us that we should understand? Because if he is perfect and holy and just in all ways, then what he says is accurate. Don't go finding your buddies and your friends because we're fallen, sinful, broken people. You're going to get the wrong message. So he says, go to Scripture. And so what he does is he goes to one of the prophets, Amos, which um, that was they would read the law and the prophets. And so they were the people that were the mouthpiece of God. So when they spoke, it was God communicating through them. And he starts sharing this. He says, Jesus is the one who rebuilt God's people. That's what he's trying to say. So we know that David was the king that all kings were held up to in, in the land of Israel. And that there's through David's line, there would be another king, a greater king, a king whose kingdom would never end, a king who would never actually die. And so there was this promise from the line of David that this individual would come. You know what the problem was? Every king that followed got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And now there is no king and the Romans are there and they've occupied the land. They're like, yeah, there's a problem. So when it talks about this kingdom that's been, that's been decimated and broken down, that's what he's referring to. But he says that God had a plan to build it back up. And the one that he was going to send to do it would be Jesus. He would establish the kingdom that would never end. He is the king that will never die. So if the king never dies, his kingdom never ends. And he says, and he's going to build that kingdom. Um, it's interesting, if you're a part of something, you usually want it to grow. You want it to be good. You're like, I want it to spread. I want others to know how great this is. If God's kingdom is so great and so amazing, then we should all desire that his kingdom would spread. And the Jews are thinking, well, this, we'll just have more Jews. And then that's how the kingdom will spread. God's like, yeah, and I'm going to bring in everyone else from the world to be a part of this kingdom. And so as he's going to grow this kingdom, he is growing it through the very idea that he's going to include the entire world that could be a part of that. That's a beautiful thing. 
He says, we're not going to trouble them. We're not going to make them try to follow these rules. And it uses the term, we're not going to burden them or put a heavy laden yoke on them. That's what he's saying. What it means is this, is trying to follow all those rules is hard and it is difficult and we don't have the ability to do it. See, we mess up the gospel all the time because we make it complicated. God made it simple to understand because we need simple, right? We're going to mess it all up. He's like, it's by grace alone through faith alone. Stop, period, done. Don't add. There's no gospel plus. No, there's not. There's a, a great uh, line that David was, was sharing with me this week. He says, um, the gospel plus nothing equals everything. The gospel plus something equals nothing. Think about that. We add, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely, amen. So what we find is that they understood in that moment the difference between saved by grace and saved by works. Why is grace better than works? Because when is good enough? Whose standards? Who's judging it? Like, I just, I laugh at times. say, oh, you know, I just want to be a good person. And I, I go, define that. And they just define what they believe is good. But what if what I believe is good is different than what you believe is good? And what if what you believe is good is different than what Mother Teresa thinks is good? And what if what Mother Teresa thinks is good is different than what Hitler thinks is good? We just, I mean, we just keep going down the line, right? There is no good then at that point. And we become gods unto ourselves and make our own laws and decide what is right and wrong. That is what, that's the warning in the Bible all the time. It's what Adam and Eve did. But you know, the other thing is we want God to be a good judge, don't we? You know, we hate injustice. We hate when things don't go punished. When a wrong has been done, we want them punished. Unless it's to us, and then we want grace. That's how that usually works. You can give me grace, but judge them. That's, that's the beauty of it. God's not going to compromise who he is. You need to understand that. For him to compromise who he is would mean that he would be lying about who he is. And God does not lie because God is sinless. So God still has to deal with this sin punishment problem. For the wages of sin is death, right? So what does God do to solve that problem? He sends his son to live the life that we couldn't live, to become a substitution for us, to go to the cross that we deserve, to, to take his wrath. Jesus took that wrath, put it on himself for the sins of the entire world. Past sins, present sins, future sins. Why could he handle it? Because he is God. That is why he is better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. He is God incarnate who died for us. And then he gives us his righteousness that we could be right before God. The perfect standard was met that we could exist in. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 has a great, a great verse in there. You probably know where I'm going with it. But it encapsulates this very idea. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace is unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's purely based on his love and his mercy for his people. He is calling us to respond to him, to bow a knee to him, 
to submit to him as our Lord and Savior. He has given us an amazing Christmas gift. He doesn't want your crumpled up $5. It's an insult, and it takes away from grace being a gift. And, and what I love what I love about this is that there's a response from God's people. So they take the letter to the Gentiles. And they say, we're going to write a letter. We're going to send some guys as like delegates to go and make sure that you know that this is who sent it. This is what we believe. And they rebuke those men who were saying that you needed to have all these works included in that. And it says this in 31 through 35. <clears throat> And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. How do they respond? They are encouraged. They respond with joy. It wasn't a bait and switch. What you said was real. We can rest in the goodness and the works of Jesus Christ, not our own. That's, that's to celebrate. It's paid. It's paid in full. You don't have to add to the gospel. You don't have to add to the sacrifice. You can simply rest in it. And it is good. And it is wonderful. And it brings encouragement to others. That's what we need to understand when we talk about the gospel. At the end of the day, Jesus plus anything equals heresy. And it's no gospel at all. That's what makes the gospel so attractive. That's what makes it so loving. That's what makes it that we want to embrace it. Every other religion in the world is about doing things to make peace or to get right in relationship with God and doing all those things and following those rules. And if you don't do it, you're out or you got to start over and do reincarnation or whatever it is because you didn't do it. And you have to keep crawling up to get to God. I got I to gotta get to him. Christianity is so much different Christianity is the only religion that says that, 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 that God that you worship, he actually did all the work through Jesus. He accomplished what you couldn't. He met perfection because you can't. You can rest in his work, not yours. And it's not that we crawl up to God. It's that God came to us. He came to where we are because he knew we couldn't take one step towards him. And it's all based out of his love for you. It's rooted in love. It's kept by his power. It's not kept by ours. So you must ask, does God then call us to live a holy and righteous life after we're saved? Yeah, he does. But that's not what saves us. And that's not what keeps us. It is the natural response to understanding a God so powerful and large that loves us so much that he would die for us so we could have life. And if he has created all things, would we not joyfully then submit to knowing that if he has that interest in mind for me, he doesn't have all the other interests in my mind for me as well? Does that make sense? Like, why would I not want to submit to a God that loves me that much? That's what he's saying. Like, and so we get to go, well, if you made everything, you know how everything works. You see all things. And so I want to joyfully do what you've called me to do in obedience to you. See, he offers that gift of grace to every single one of us. 
If you're here today and you've never heard the message of God's free grace for sinners, he offers that to you today. No strings attached. Purely based out of his love for you, knowing that you cannot save yourself that he wants you to know that he has done everything that needs to be done. All you have to do is surrender to him and say, God, you are my Lord. I love you. That's it. That's the gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to have two individuals that they're going to show us what that looks like because they're getting baptized. We're getting two people baptized and they're going to say like, yeah, I love Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my savior. I've placed my life in his. I want to joyfully be obedient to him in all things. And so we're going to hop in the tank in a second, so I have to change really fast. So I'll have to do that, and we'll have some music to make sure I can do that. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And as they come up, um, we have some people wearing these tags. There's a few people wearing these tags, um, staff and elders and other people. And here's what I want to do. We're going to have them stand off to the side towards the back of the room. And it just says, need prayer. We know that we all come here and we bring lots of baggage, don't we? There's a lot going on in our lives. You may be a believer and just need someone to pray for you, like, I'm struggling. Please pray for me. And they'll pray for you because they love you. But not only do they do that, they're praying to the God of the universe to intervene in your life and to engage you because he loves you so much. And you just may need someone to pray for you because you're struggling right now. Don't be afraid to do that. This is what family does. Or maybe you just heard this message for the first time. You're like, I, there is something about what you said, Simon, that's resonating in my heart. I want to come to Jesus. I, I, we want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. We want to make sure if you have questions, you can ask those questions. So they'll be in the back. And please go and talk to them. And that can happen during this song. But I want you to know, though I was discouraged not to share this particular passage, there is nothing that is more gospel-centered than this particular passage that God ordained a year ago when I picked when I was going to preach on what I was going to preach on. That he wanted you to hear this message today. There are no such things as coincidences. And God's love is so big and wide, it is enough for all of us to take our guilt and to take our shame, that you can leave it at the foot of the cross and walk away from it and never have to look back at it again. If you want that, call in the name of Jesus and he will offer it to you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for our guests that are here. I thank you for those that are here that, that do know you, that maybe today what they need to do is realize that there are areas in their life where they are still adding a plus. They're trying to add their works to what you've done and let them know that they don't have to. Lord, I ask that they would confess that they would repent of that sin and purely and simply rest in the work that you've done on the cross. Lord, if you've been working in the hearts of someone here today who wants to know you, Lord, I ask that you would give them the courage to stand up, to go walk to the side, to talk to one of the, the leaders or one of the elders or one of the staff members, and that they would have a conversation that revolves around you. We are grateful for you. We love you for all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.